the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Election Eve edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us, danproftshow.com, on social media, at Dan Proft Show. And uh, we begin the program tonight uh, just trying to discern what the polling tells us will happen tomorrow. And, of course, it's telling us very conflicting things depending on which polling you believe. For example, you have the New York Times, of course, uh, trying to drill down and say, election at hand, Biden leads Trump in four key states, according to polling they use. You have the Wall Street Journal NBC poll that has Joe Biden up on President Trump by 10 percentage points nationally. That's among registered voters. So those there's are two things you can down, can discount one a national poll and two registered voters versus likely voters. But this is what you have to go through if you want to try to assess the utility of any particular polling. By contrast, in one of the swing states, we see the Des Moines Register, which is otherwise a uses a, a respecting a polling outfit that's proven fairly accurate in the past as it pertains to Iowa, that uh, shows both Trump and Joni Erst opening up seven-point leads on uh, their respective opponents in the closing days. I'm just throwing these out. I'm going to get to a point here in a second. The Hill-Harris poll, which uh, looked at President Trump's approval rating and among likely voters has his approval rating at 49 percent. So I suggest that one of the things that you have to think about is what the motivations are of some of these outlets and the firm's they retain? Do they desire a particular outcome to feed a particular narrative to achieve a particular political objective? Well, golly gee, I, you'd have to be a little naive based on what the D.C. press corps has said about themselves and their motivations to not believe that's at least in part at play. The other thing is just applying some common sense. You don't need to be a econometrician to ask the question, wait a second. So the Hill-Harris poll has, has its approval rating among likely voters at 49 percent, but I'm supposed to believe but I'm supposed to believe nationally that he's going to come in with 42, 43, 44 percent of the vote. That many people who approve of the job that he did are going to fall off and vote for another candidate. Well, that seems unlikely and even more so for states in play, perhaps. Well, one of the things that's interesting is you have uh, this uh, Howard Rourke of polling in Robert Cahaley at the Trafalgar Group. Now, again, he's not the only pollster that was right in 2016. So was our friend from the uh, IBD tip poll we'll get to in a second. He also sees the race closing a little bit above where he thinks Trump wins electorally, but it was closing and it's closing in swing states in his poll as well. But uh, Robert Cahaley at the Trafalgar Group gave an interview to uh, Michael Smirconish, CNN, over the weekend. And it's worth checking out because it was good. It uh, put the criticisms of Cahaley to him and allowed him to respond. And then he and Smirconish had a bit of back and forth. So Here's the criticisms of, of Robert Cahaley and Trafalgar's polling, which, remember, their essential secret sauce is a belief that there is a social desirability bias. And uh, many of the other pollsters are not factoring that in. That social desirability bias such that Trump supporters 
will not tell you a certain percentage of Trump Trump supporters will not tell you they are Trump supporters if they believe their responses will not be anonymous because of the repercussions they've seen culturally for people who are out and proud for Trump. Okay, so that backdrop, Philip Bump at The Washington Post on Kahaley's polling. The word I would use to describe his claims is laughable from his claim about the sample size, which is absolutely ridiculous and statistically unsound, to his claims about the ways in which they do the polling, which are both uh, unproven and subject to a lot of fluctuation that real pollsters try and avoid. I would say that someone who is trying to bank on having made a correct guess in one election uh, is uh, not necessarily someone who you should assume necessarily has a, a strong track record of success. Yeah, well, someone that makes uh, specious arguments that are not rooted in facts is also someone you won't shouldn't trust. And you'll get Kahaley's response to what Bump said there. You know, he was lucky, lucky in 2016. And by the way, this is against the backdrop of Trafalgar Group predicting a Trump electoral victory tomorrow night. Uh, this is uh, Nate Silver, 538 blog, criticizing Kahaley as read by Smirconish. Similarly, Nate Silver of the 538 blog recently tweeted this. I don't know exactly what they're doing, but it's not a good sign that I always know what a Trafalgar group poll is going to say without having to open the link. So, uh, one, the methodology is suspect. And two is that they're in the tank for Trump and the Republicans. Those are the criticisms. Kahaley responds. What I think you're finding is these guys are making pot shots, but clearly the fellow from the Washington Post hadn't done his research because he said we got one election right. He didn't uh, run through the statistic of 92.6 of the time our calls are right. That's a statistic that the Washington Post can get nowhere near in their polling. Um, So yeah, what what they're pointing to is that they think that our methodology, because it's different, is wrong. And first of all, we believe that people aren't honest with pollsters. We don't think that's wrong. We think that's mo- the modern world. Uh, it's called the social desirability bias. It's been around for a while. Uh, it was in play in 2016, shy Trump voters. You've heard this theory. Uh, and it was certainly in play in the governor's race in Florida last year. And that's why they all got it wrong again. And you know what's interesting is Nate Silver, one of Kahaley's critics, does suggest he said so on social media. That if Biden were to lose Pennsylvania, then he becomes the underdog in the race. So as much as the D.C. press corps saying this is a fait accompli, this is done and probably an electoral blowout for Biden. Maybe that comes to pass if Biden wins Pennsylvania. But it's that close that Pennsylvania could turn Biden into the president from the from being the likely president to being the uh, likely loser in the race. And Pennsylvania, according to many polls and even D.C. Press Corps reporting, has closed significantly in the last week. Now, there's still disparities between Trafalgar and some of the others, including CNN, which is what Smirconish goes through comparing CNN's polling of, you know, poll of the polls versus what Trafalgar has, some of the swing states, including Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, I'll put this on the screen. Let me show you where the CNN poll of polls is and where you are. You show it at 48.4 to 47.6, essentially a tie. CNN says it's a seven-point race. Let me move on to Wisconsin next. Wisconsin, a huge outlier, 47.1 to 47.5. You've got Wisconsin by nine for, for uh, uh, pardon me, CNN has Wisconsin by nine for Joe Biden. Wherein lies that disconnect? A nine-point race or a dead heat? I like my record versus CNN polls in the last two cycles. I'll stand by that. 
And, tra- and uh, Kahalia Trafalgar goes on to say, look, uh, our, our, our success rate or pr- prediction is about 92 percent in terms of the last two cycles. And it includes predicting things like Tony Evers would beat Scott Walker, uh, that um, uh, John James would lose against Debbie Stabenow in the, in the U.S. Senate race in Michigan. So th- it's not like they're just predicting what they want to happen. They're predicting what they think will happen. And that includes Democrats that they've predicted to win who have indeed won. But it's, it was funny, I, you know, even SNL may be starting to wake up to the speciousness of ignoring the idea of the existence of a social desirability bias, which is something, by the way, the left used to believe in when it was called the Bradley effect. Tom Bradley, former mayor of L.A., when he under uh, 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 underachieved his polling number running for governor, and the idea there's a Bradley effect. More people said they were voting for the black guy than actually did vote for the black guy because they thought that was so socially desirable. That's what you're supposed to say. That's what you're supposed to do. But they really weren't doing it and they really didn't do it. And he really didn't win the race. But now it's dismissed. Well, SNL with Jim Carrey uh, reading uh, a parody of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven for the cold open. They uh, parodied the polling, including Nate Silver. You're excited to vote and very, very, very worried about the outcome. (laughs) But don't worry. They say I'm eight points ahead. Poll numbers like that can only go wrong once in a blue moon. (laughs) And then he looks out the window and the moon is blue, of course. And then the introduction of Nate Silver during the reading. I checked the website, 538, to find out my election fate. Nate Silver, you will know the score. Even though I was wrong before. So look, guys, uh, our current model shows that Trump has less than a one in six chance of winning. About the same odds as the number one coming up when you roll a die. So, for example, (laughs) one. (laughs) Well, I guess that shows you that it's technically possible, however unlikely. But roll it again, and you'll see that it's a have one. <laughs> but roll it again, and electoral college tie, that's not even an option. Okay, I'm just going to leave because I think our country is haunted. Uh, Okay, we'll pick this up after the break because I want to give you yet another example as if you needed one. A couple of examples, actually, of why there may be a pronounced social desirability bias when it comes to trying to assess where the electorate is actually at for tomorrow. Remember, with according to a CBS YouGov poll, one more poll. Are you voting Election Day or for those of you who are voting Election Day? What's the spread? 62 to 27 for Trump. Those committed to vote on Election Day, 62 to 27 is the advantage Trump has on Election Day. That social desirability bias, more on that right after this. Suddenly the heavens roll. Suddenly the rain came down. Suddenly was washed away. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Continuing our discussion on polling and the social desirability bias. You know, this is something, uh, even in an artful way, that even a dope like Michael Moore gets with respect to the polling that has uh, Trump losing this race. Don't believe these polls, first of all. And second of all, the Trump vote is always being undercounted. Uh, pollsters, when they actually call a real Trump voter, 
the Trump voter is very suspicious of the deep state calling them and asking them who they're voting for. And um, and they it's all fake news to them. Remember, so uh, it is not an accurate count. I think the safe thing to do. This is not scientific. I'm just saying from my experience of being a Michigander, whatever they're saying, the Biden lead is cut it in half right now in your head, cut it in half. And now you're within the four point margin of error. Mm. That's how close this is. And some Trump supporters uh, certainly agree with him. In Butler, Pennsylvania, Byron York over the Washington Examiner was there talking to folks attending a Trump rally there. One gentleman he spoke with planned to vote for Trump, but felt too intimidated to say so publicly, consistent with the discussion we've been having on the topic. He was talking about his mother, but she would kill him if she found out that he told anyone. The guy told Byron York. There are a lot of people who are too afraid to put up a sign for Trump. He, uh, his neighborhood was a mix between Trump and Biden voters, black and white voters, he said. During the uh, protest that followed the death of George Floyd, he said, I pulled the Trump magnet off my Jeep. Everybody took their signs down. People don't want to be a target. Yeah. And um, you think that's just a one-off. It's not a one-off. Sean Parnell, Republican candidate for Congress in a swing district in Pennsylvania, uh, got uh, graffitied. His garage got graffitied. Elections, no. Revolution, yes. So they will dox you and then they will send goons out to damage your property or worse. Go after you, uh, your job, go after your kids in schools. That's what we've seen happen. Publicly confront you at restaurants. This has been encouraged. And you don't think the social desirability bias is a real thing. I'll give you another example. Jody Shaw is a uh, administrative assistant at Smith College. Oh, yes. One of the uh, hallowed seven sisters, Smith College, elite liberal arts university in Massachusetts, right? She has taken to uh, YouTube to explain what's going on at Smith College and to call for a reform from the purge culture and all of the idiocy that springs from critical race theory, which we've spent a good deal of time discussing on this show. That's occurring at Smith College as well, that all she is in the eyes of the deep thinkers at Smith College is her skin color. And that's all anybody is. I ask that Smith College stop reducing my personhood to a racial category. Stop telling me what I must think and feel about myself because I feel like you do that a lot. I know you do that a lot and I I need you to stop doing that. Stop presuming to know who I am or what my culture is based upon my skin color because you don't know that. You don't know that about anybody except for yourself. Stop asking me to project stereotypes and assumptions onto others based upon their skin color because I feel like That's what you ask me to do incessantly (laughs) over and over again for the past three years. And I'm not going to do that. I don't think it's right. Stop telling me young women of color have no power or agency in this world because that's not true. Stop telling me that young white women have power and privilege over everyone else. Equally not true. And both of those narratives that you are teaching to students and trying to convince staff of are very disempowering. This is her version of organizing in the workplace. This is actually very creative on her part, organizing in the workplace that is protected by federal law. It's not just necessarily with respect to unionization. It's organizing sort of generally, specific unionization, organizing generally for workers' rights within a workplace, a little bit of using the left's employee-related federal protections against them. She's uh, tired of people being subjected to unverified allegations and uh, those allegations being treated as gospel if they come from an identitarian place. 
Lastly, we have the right to work in an environment free from the ever-present terror that any unverified student allegation of racism or any other ism has the power to crush our reputations, ruin our livelihood, and even endanger the physical safety of ourselves or our family members. Yeah, we shouldn't have to work in that kind of environment. That, that should just be obvious. I'm a human being and I'm a valuable member of the Smith College community, or at least I used to think I was. I, I don't really feel valuable anymore because I, I don't feel like you value me. I feel like my skin color is the most important thing about me and that, that doesn't feel good. My value, I believe my value lies in the quality of my work, the goodness of my deeds, the essence of my character, and the fullness of my heart, not my skin color. So this, these videos I'm making are really an effort to organize in the workplace for better working conditions, and they're really for staff. Certainly, faculty and students can get in touch with me, as long as they remember that's what these videos are for. And uh, she... Suggests that, you know, she was not itching to be the one to come forward, but uh, these private conversations she was having with other staff at Smith College needed to become public. It really needs to be talked about. And I didn't want to be the one talking about it, but Smith has engaged in behavior toward me that has pushed me over a line. And I didn't think it was possible for them to push me over that line when they did. So here I am. And I really want to talk to other staff about this. I've actually already talked to a lot of you about these issues. And one common theme that comes up is, why doesn't anybody talk publicly about it? Well, the answer is because we're too afraid not to. So we all kind of just collude in it, keep our heads down, our mouths shut, because the consequences for not following the script are so severe. And we know what the consequences are. We've seen the consequences. Consequence for not following the script. So just remember this again the, in terms of people's suspicion, concern, fear of saying anything that they think could be perceived as putting a target on their back, like I'm a Trump supporter in consideration of polling. But obviously this is much bigger than this presidential election. And also consider the source here again, the source. What's her perspective? What is her politics, Jody Shaw's politics? Right now, Smith, I don't think you're doing a good job of following the law. So I want you to do better. I'm an alum, and this is not a left, right, or a red versus blue issue. This is a human issue. And I don't think my political persuasion has anything to do with it, but I'm going to say that I'm a lifelong liberal, in case that helps. It, it, and the, and the, it's a great uh, tag at the end. I'm a lifelong liberal in case that helps. And guess what? It doesn't because there is zero tolerance for deviation from the illiberal left. And that's what she has found at Smith College. Again, one of the elite small liberal arts colleges, one of the seven sisters in the Northeast. And we see this, too. We'll talk about this next hour with Dr. Chad Savage. How do you go from being uh, one of the world's leading epidemiologists to being characterized, branded as a charlatan? come down uh, with a position against the illiberal left when it comes to, in this case, with Dr. Sinatra Gupta from Oxford University with respect to lockdown policy. That's how quickly it can happen. And tell me that these are not examples and so many others like that at a granular level that we probably aren't even aware of that people see and that impacts what they're willing to disclose. But uh, we'll switch gears when we come back and we're going to talk to NFL Hall of Famer Herschel Walker 
But another aspect of identitarian politics, some of which Jody Shaw was talking about, which is race identity politics. That's coming up right after the break. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. One of the more memorable talks at the Republican National Convention was from uh, NFL Hall of Famer Herschel Walker. And one of the reasons it was memorable is because of the indelible image that Herschel Walker left America with. One time, I planned to take his kids to Disney World with my family. At the last minute, Donald said he'd like to join us. So they was in a business suit on uh, It's a Small World Ride. Donald Trump on It's a Small World at Disney World. That is an image. On a serious note, because Herschel Walker is also a serious person and a serious Christian, he talked about the accusations against Trump that then are turned on people, particularly black Americans or other minorities who support Trump. The accusation that Trump is a racist, so that anybody associated with him is either a racist or they're suborning racism. The worst one is racist. I take it as a personal insult that people would think I've had a 37-year friendship with a racist. People who think that don't know what they're talking about. Growing up in the Deep South, I've seen racism up close. I know what it is, and it isn't Donald Trump. Just because someone loves and respects the flag, our national anthem, and our country, doesn't mean they don't care about social justice. I care about all those things. So does Donald Trump. For more, we're pleased to be joined by Heisman Trophy winner, Georgia Bulldog, and uh, NFL Hall of Famer, Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. So uh, here we stand uh, just 24 hours from Election Day, and how do you feel about the race and the prospects for your 37-year friend, Donald Trump? Well, I'm feeling pretty good about it. I'm sad that this country is so divided the way it's divided right now because picking a president, you know, we should be uh, just picking the president, someone that you feel can do a great job for this country, that you can do a great job for the people, because everyone elected to go to Washington should be working for the people and not just for themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny to to see someone like uh, 50 Cent chastised by someone like Chelsea Handler. I don't even know if you know who she is. There's no reason you should. But to say that 50 Cent supports Donald Trump because he doesn't want to become 20 cents just supports him because of his tax plan and chelsea handler saying you're not allowed to vote for him because you're black so white a white leftist woman like chelsea handler telling black people who they can and cannot vote for and donald trump's the racist well and that's what's so uh terrible because almost like you want to say a black person not educated or he's not educating himself because, you know, you vote Democrat or you have a mind of your own. And one of the things I tell people all the time, I say, guys, you can listen to me all you want, but I'd love for you to go educate yourself on these policies. And that's what 50 Cent was looking at. He was looking at the policy. It had nothing to do with his skin color. And I said, guys, that's what you got to look at today. What fits you? What fits what you love about America? And once you start doing that, I think you can make the right decision. And we have to do things together. We got to work together. And we got to support each everybody, not just one color, but everybody. How do you react when you get criticized, called names, or people, even friends come up and say, you know, Herschel, you can't be out and and outspoken like this on Trump. It's not right. 
it, it would just seem to me like I don't understand where they're going. The, the point is, do you believe America is flawed but good and trying to get better and we can help it be better? Or do you believe America is irreparably damaged, irreparably bad? And what we should uh, just turn America into something that it was never conceived to be? Well, you know, I was bullied as a little kid. I was overweight, had a speech impediment. I was bullied a great deal, and, and I overcame it. And today I said people can't bully me for what I think is right. What I think is right is America is a great country. I love the United States of America. When I hear celebrities and athletes say this is such a racist country, and I want to say, guys, you say that we're so oppressed and things like that. All you're doing is giving people an excuse not to work hard. If you made it, they can make it as well. We are such a systemic racism, and I hate to say this, how do we have a black president for two terms? You know, that means that white people had to vote for him because he could not have made it just by African-Americans vote. And right now, you know, everyone seems to be saying, oh, horse are going to talk about African-American voting. No, I'm going to talk about American voting because the Hispanic vote is important as, as well. Yeah. White vote is important as well because we're in this country together, people, and we have to put the right one in office to keep all those American values. And that's what I say. But I heard them not want to mention God. I don't want to live in a place that don't want God in their house. I got to have my faith. You know, I, you know, my faith helped me to overcome so much, and it has helped so many other people as well. And I'm not telling you who to believe in, but I'm telling you who I believe in. And I said, guys, when you start looking at that and you look at the council culture today, they want to take your speech away. They want to take this. They want to shout you down. That's not right. You need, we need law and order. You know, and do we need to correct it and make it better? Yes, but you don't defund it. What you do is you go in and you retrain the trainer. You retrain the officers. And, you know, I, I studied criminal justice in college. I was going to law school. And I said, guys, everybody is not evil. You know, 99.9% of the police officers are good people. Same thing as in this country. A lot of people in this country are good people. What you do have, some that's not. But that's the way life is. When we come back with NFL Hall of Famer Herschel Walker, we'll talk a little bit of NFL, and I also want to get his take on the Christian-American vote. More right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with NFL Hall of Famer Herschel Walker. Before the break, we were talking about uh, being out and proud for President Trump and uh, you making the right choice of choosing uh, the NFL over law school. But um, I, I just, you know, I think the statute of limitations has run. So can you tell us what happened to those people who bullied you as a kid? Have they ever been heard from again? Well, you know, what's so funny is I still remember the guy that bullied me. And this is what's so funny. You know, I... Uh, uh, if I see him today, I probably would thank him. And people said, why would you do that? I, said, I probably would thank him because he didn't just beat me up, but he woke me up. He made me get out and start feeling better about who I was. I started working out. You know, and I and I overcame so much. And I and I said, you know, sometimes man can mean things to be bad, but God can turn it as good. But you got to always look up to go up. You cannot always just look down. And that's what I see going on right now. We always want to look down and look terrible. And I'm like, guys, you know, Herschel Walker, I'm always going to be happy. You know, this I got a great family. I got a wonderful friend. I got all this. Even some of the friends, you know, I had friends that leave that didn't want to, that didn't like who I voted for. And I'm like, guys, when did it come that you get angry at someone because of their belief? 
or you dislike someone or you want to hurt someone because of what they believe in. That's not a country I want to live in. That's China. That's some other country that the government now is going to put you away because you believe in this. I don't want to live in that country, and I don't want to become that country. Do you still, given uh, your position on people uh, disrespecting the flag, the anthem, America, do you still watch the NFL? Can you stomach it when people take a knee, for example, players take a knee, for example? Well, now, this is shocking. This is going to be shocking to America. Do you know I didn't grow up playing football? I learned football from books. So I never really watched sports when I was playing the sports, but I wouldn't watch it now because of that. I, I don't think people should be taking a knee. I think the commissioners of mostly major league uh, uh, teams did the wrong thing. I think they became a terrible leader. I think being a leader, you may do things that some people disagree with, but it got to be the right thing to do. I think what the commissioner should have told all the players that we're going to stay in and what we're going to do after this season. He got to put himself on the line, too. After this season, me as a commissioner and all the owners and the players, we're going to march down to Washington, and we're going to get the people to change these laws. Because that's what you have to do, just by protesting. As they were protesting, they never came up with a solution. They didn't have an end game, you know, and, and they didn't have what they really wanted because they said, oh, we want social justice. Well, my question is, what do that look like? We want this here. Okay, what does that look like? What you have to do is we have to go to Washington. And the people that's in Washington that's been sitting there for year on, year out, not doing one thing to change it, but yet they've been in, in fueling the fire by saying, oh, yeah, it's so injustice, it's so terrible. But yet they're in office that they can change it. They haven't changed not one thing, but yet they continue to talk about it and stuff. And I said that's what the commissioner should have said because he knows what's going on. He knows that there are some problems in the NFL and the NBA because, you know, what you need to do is let, let's talk about getting uh, African-American owners. Let's talk about getting Hispanic owners. Let's figure out a way to do those things if you want to make things equal. And then how can you say that there's uh, injustice in the league when the majority of the NBA are black? The majority of football players are black, but the ownership is where the disparity is at. So let's work on getting that, but yet that doesn't come up. It's always something else. And I said, guys, if you look at things, this is not that bad. And I said, life is not as bad as people make it out to be. Life is pretty good in America. And if you don't like it, you can go try to live somewhere else, and I guarantee you're going to come back. Uh, the, um, uh, the the point you make about um, earlier about culture, about religious liberty, there's uh, estimates that 40 million Christian Americans, all races, 40 million Christian Americans will not vote in this election. And so I just wonder what you think about uh, what what you think in terms of a message to not just black Christians, but all Christian Americans in terms of the importance of, of voting. Well, the importance of voting as a Christian is you got to stand for something. If you don't stand for something, you, you live for nothing. Because right now you're voting on whether you're going to have a leader that's going to lead you down the right track and protect your your faith. Because in the Bible itself it said, if you don't acknowledge my father, I'm not going to acknowledge you. By not acknowledging to vote at all, it's saying that you have no person in this game. You have to get out and stand for something or do something if you're a Christian. And that's what I told people. I said, guys, I didn't just talk for Donald Trump. I wanted people to know the truth. You know, I know a lot of things they've said that wasn't the truth about this guy. So that's the reason I came out. But I got even madder when I happened to see someone holding a BLM sign up, burning a cross, burning the Holy Bible, and then burning the United States flag. And I was like, no, that's not the country I want to grow up in. That's not the country I want my kids to grow up in. That's not the country I want my family and my friends to grow up in. 
man. I want America. I do believe in that term. Give me liberty or give me death. Because I would live my whole life standing on my feet begging for my freedom to speak, to have a gun, to uh, go to church, then to live on my knees begging for something from the government. And that's what they want to do right now. My hope is that uh, black voters in swing states and Latino voters in swing states uh, put Donald Trump over the top tomorrow. In other words, you can look at the incremental improvement in his percentage of votes from those communities and say, arguably, that they put him over the top in terms of redefining the choices in America, including that it's okay to vote for a Republican candidate for president or any other office for that matter, as long as you said, you know, that they're proposing things that are in your interest to support. Do you think that's possible? Do you think that uh, he, we're going to see well, real improvements in those communities for Trump? I guarantee you that's going to happen. I, I think, uh, you know, they talked about he getting in the single digits last time. Donald Trump was getting the upper 20s in the black, black community, and I think it may even be larger. And he's going to get even larger in the Hispanic community as well, because I think people are starting to really look at the policies. They're starting to really look at things, and I think they're starting to wake up. You know, I'm not going to get down and, and I, you know, when Donald Trump first came out with Drain the Swamp, I'm going to be honest with you. I had no clue of what he was talking about, but I was going along with it. Yeah, Drain the Swamp, whatever that is. But I didn't realize what he was talking about is what was going on in Washington. And I think we see it today that what's going on in Washington is people go to Washington not to represent the people, but to represent themselves not representing themselves. And you see that, what was happening with all the Russia thing, with everything that was going on. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know, you make a decision and you're a leader. You don't make the decision on, oh, it's for you. You make the decision on the team. Well, the America's team had getting the right decision made for them. And that's what I think is sad. He is Herschel Walker, Hall of Fame running back and a longtime 37-year friend of President Trump. Herschel Walker, real pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you guys. Thank you for having me on, and God bless. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Um, it's great to talk to Herschel Walker, NFL great, man, he's good. I wanted to go back to um, a segment prior to Herschel Walker when I was talking about when I was talking about Jody Shaw from Smith College, who was taken to video to decry the working conditions at Smith College under identitarian purge culture, essentially, even if she identifies as herself as a lifelong liberal, uh, which is about 99 percent of Smith grads, I would estimate. Anyway, Rod Dreher, in commenting on her video, compared her to the uh, green grocer in uh, Václav Havel's Power of the Powerless. Václav Havel, of course, the great uh, Czech playwright and freedom fighter. The green grocer who displays in his shop the workers of the world unite sign. Since failure to the sign could be seen as disloyalty to the state, he displays it. And the sign becomes not an example of his enthusiasm for the regime, but a symbol of his submission to it and humiliation by it. This is Havel uses to explain the contradictions between the intentions of life and the intentions of systems between the individual and the state in a totalitarian society. This is what we've talked about before on this show, living one life in public and a very different life in private. Your public life is a lie, the lie that you need to tell 
and to tell yourself in order to survive. That's what Jody Shaw was doing at Smith until she wasn't anymore. How do you overcome this sort of powerlessness? Maybe a, a good conversation. I don't want to compare America to uh, you know, on the precipice of Soviet-style totalitarianism, but this culture is fairly oppressive, and those who are promulgating it don't seem to be demonstrating much give, do they? You know, one of the ways that you defy that sort of oppressive culture is to live the truth. By living the truth in your daily life, you distinguish yourselves from the mandated culture prescribed by the state. And one of the things you need to understand, and you see this playing out with some of the lockdown policies around the country, around the world, the tyrants who rule at the top can't really control every aspect of an individual citizen's life, despite their best efforts to do so. No amount of laws, no amount of secret police can do it. You have to get buy-in either through brainwashing or through fear to the culture they demand. And those in the sort of functionary positions down the food chain perform the rituals mandated by the state, but their blind obedience tends to dull their perceptions of what's happening on the ground and thus the leader's understanding, the tyrant's understanding of what's happening on the ground, which opens up more space for those who don't wish to conform. Václav Havel contended properly that endemic to the human being is a desire for freedom, for truth, for individual dignity, and you can never fully repress that. And that's sort of what's happening with the restaurants that are defying lockdown orders in my home state, continuing to have indoor dining despite the state diktat. And it's uh, what Jody Shaw is doing at Smith College and the face, you know, using the her argument, the opportunities provided by federal law as it's currently constituted to organize for better working conditions for employees of Smith College. And that taking an interesting angle, an asymmetrical angle into an oppressive culture on the college campus, which is, of course, as we know, we've talked about at some length over the last many months, has metastasized to be, become part of American culture generally. But there's something that everybody can do living in truth the way that Jody Shaw has chosen to do that now. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on social media at danproftshow. And in uh, Detroit over the weekend, uh, Joe Biden coming out of his basement for a couple of campaign appearances while President Trump was crisscrossing the nation with rally after rally, trying to get some celebrity help to enhance his cachet, maybe have a few more cars show up to beep their horns. Stevie Wonder was at the Biden rally in Detroit, as was former President Obama. I don't know if Stevie Wonder was on script. I don't know if they want this to be part of their closing argument, does the Biden team. I hear that someone wants to give black Americans or African-American people a holiday. They want to make supposedly Juneteenth the holiday. Okay, I'll tell you what you can do better than that. And I know Joe Biden will do it. Give us reparations. 
for the work that we've all done for the last 400 years, unpaid. I think it's going to be a tough sell to give Stevie Wonder reparations. He's found a lot of success in America, this just in. But it is sort of interesting, sort of Motown, Stevie Wonder versus uh, the uh, Gen X and younger rappers like Ice Cube and 50 Cent and Lil Wayne for President Trump. Oh, by the way, in terms of Ice Cube's lament about the Democrats making generic promises that never materialize, contrast that with President Trump's platinum plan that uh, speaks to what his commitments are to providing more opportunity for black Americans in a second term to sort of building upon the success he was having, creating an environment where jobs were created, opportunities extended, wages increasing for all Americans, including necessarily black Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans and the like. Specific plan versus the airy promises that some are getting tired of. Sort of an interesting contrast. For more on this, pleased to be joined again by John Gabriel. He is the editor-in-chief at Ricochet, ricochet.com, contributed to azcentral.com as well. John, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. So uh, where do you, what do you think here as we uh, stand on election eve and uh, even uh, some of the polling that had President Trump still decidedly down in swing states seeming to narrow and the narrative coming out of the D.C. press corps over the weekend seeming to hedge a bit? Yeah, it's kind of interesting to watch. And it's one of those things like me and when I chat with my friends, it's like you're optimistic one hour and the next maybe 30 minutes later, you're saying, ah, no, I don't think it's going to work. Oh, actually, it might work. Right. can always be topsy-turvy. And especially because 2016, all of the smart people, quote unquote, said, you know, it wasn't even going to be close. And Trump ended up pulling it out. And so I think that's why there's a lot of hope out there. And also, too, there was just news today. I live in the area. Arizona area, and uh, you know you'll see these Trump rallies driving around, and news just uh, came out: Biden's not bothering to visit Arizona, which was theoretically a battleground state. He hasn't. I think he might have visited briefly in uh, when we had our primary, but he isn't acting like it's a battleground. So it's kind of interesting to watch the media panic a little bit and worry about this and uh, just insisting that, oh, we won't know what the election results are Tuesday night or maybe not Wednesday or maybe not the end of November. So like you said, they are really hedging their bets. They're definitely nervous and they have access to a lot more internal information than they trot out to the general public. What's your assessment of Trump's seemingly asymmetrical campaign with respect to the continued overtures he has made to the black community and to the Latino community. I mean, there's some polling that uh, has him in terms of the split between him and Biden with Latino voters at like 52 to 48 Biden to Trump with Latino voters. I mean, George W. Bush got 44 percent of the Latino vote in 2004. So being in the 40s is not unprecedented. But it's just remarkable that he could potentially be in the 40s with Latino voters. And if he is and if he's in the teens with black voters, there's really no way for Biden to win. Yeah, it's really fascinating to see. And they're like, if you watch the Republican National Convention, I had never seen a Republican convention reach out to African-American, Latino, other minority voters more than he did. And it was effortless. It wasn't uh, Stevie Wonder Wishes uh, promising reparations and all these kind of things. It's like, look, we want you to succeed and I'm doing everything I can to help you succeed. And that's why minority unemployment plummeted to its lowest numbers ever. So he's just basically treating minorities 
not as, oh, you're a special interest group and I need to pass programs so you'll like me. It's just like, no, welcome aboard. <laughs> Come on over. And it's not pandering and it's just reaching out. And a lot of people are responding. I, I think he'll definitely, especially among African-American males, um, I think he has made major inroads and also Latino males as well and probably women as well. People tend to think of Hispanics as one group, one right. big group. Right. But that's not, not how they yes. identify themselves. No. It's not how they vote. It depends state by state. They're a lot more uh, left-leaning in California than in Texas or even in Arizona because they have different life experiences. And most Hispanic Americans I know here who are like one, two generations in to living here, you know, they are the most aggressive. So they want a government that will help when needed, but mostly just stay the heck out of the way and not try to coddle and infantilize them. I love the uh, op-eds from just sort of um, that are just sort of from a commonsensical place of people that aren't really political, but, you know, sort of everybody has been pressed to be somewhat political in these times, unfortunately. So example of what I'm talking about is Clay Travis over at Outkick.com, this popular mainly sports blog, he and Jason Whitlock over there. Uh, he uh, wrote a piece about why he's voting for Trump, and he, he starts out by saying, oh, just for those of you who don't know, here are my presidential votes since I became a public media figure in 2004. John Kerry, Barack Obama, Barack Obama, Gary Johnson, and in 2020, Donald Trump. So this is hardly some, you know, party movement Republican, right? And, but he writes this, the Democrat Party has moved in a massive way towards the far left wing over the past decade. He said, my beliefs haven't really changed. It's the world that changed around me. They've embraced the idea of reparations, defunding the police, labeling our country systematically racist and unfair. I think all of these ideas, frankly, are madness. And in the process, I believe the Democrat Party, often fueled by a mob of blue checkmark brigade members on social media, has lost its connection with the regular people in this country. The Democrat Party used to be the party of the average working people in this country, people like my mom and dad who never made more than 50 grand a year in their careers. Now it has left those people behind. And what they may find out again, John, is that there's a lot more people making 50 grand a year than there are making $500,000 a year. Yeah, exactly. And it's people, too, who are afraid to sure they're you know they, they don't want to lose their literally coaching job because they don't share a black square on instagram yes. or they support the wrong candidate or like the wrong tweet and that's the world that so many people on the left are bringing in i know biden likes to portray himself as a moderate but he you know by picking harris he's just telegraphing to everyone that the progressives are going to be running the show and what they want is hardcore culture war all the time the right is always blamed for culture war issues, but it's always the left pushing hard and the right just saying, hey, slow down a little bit, and uh, then we get attacked for fighting a culture war. So, yeah, it, it's just getting very tough when I chat with people who are working with large corporations and you know, every other week is another round of diversity training and lecturing and things like that. People are tired of it, and I think there's just kind of a lot of quiet contempt for this new wokeocracy that's being imposed on us that none of us voted for. They're just sick of it. Father Frank Pavone is the national director of Priest for Life, as you know. He wrote in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, interesting observations, because, you know, many of these media outlets, New York Times, CNN, have done well in terms of their bottom line in the Trump era. But he writes, in a real sense, the president has defeated the media. No matter what the outcome of this election, the media will never again be able to convince the public that it is objective. Everyone, not only conservative conservatives, now knows where it stands. This is the real reason the media hates Trump with a blazing white hot intensity. You know, you can uh, enhance your bottom line temporarily, but you can't restore your credibility and your own sort of standing in the in society in your own mind. That that's gone for these folks. It's, they're they're narrow cast now, not broadcast. And I wonder if if Father Pavone is onto something. 
I think he's absolutely right, and it's something that people who were politically active on the right for a long time said, oh, the media is biased, and they are, you know, they are not fair in their coverage, but now apolitical people just go, oh, CNN is going to hate Trump, and Fox is going to at least be nice to him. They'll have you know, two panelists who like him and two who don't like him. MSNBC is just, you know, they're going to be doing some concoct, some crazy Vladimir Putin conspiracy, but everybody knows where they stand now, and uh, you have a network like CNN, which has been last in the cable news ratings for a decade, and they just keep doing the exact same thing. It's just more cowbell for them all the time. They have no interest in learning a lesson. They view themselves as an arm of the Democratic Party, and uh, within the Democratic Party, they are trying to push Democrats even more left. So everyone knows where they stand now, and nobody can trust them. That's the thing. It's so frustrating. Um, When I need to research an article, I have to kind of triangulate. I look at conservative sources. I look at mainstream slash liberal sources and uh, say, okay, the truth is you know, probably in the middle there somewhere. But if some network just came out and say, hey, we are going to report what happened today and let you make up your own mind about it, I, I think it would go gangbusters. And the press is just totally uninterested in just providing useful information. He is John Gabriel, the editor-in-chief at ricochet.com, contributor to azcentral.com. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Dr. Chad Savage about both Biden care as well as the uh, curious case of the uh, branding of one of the world's leading epidemiologists as a charlatan. So stay tuned for that. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Dr. Sinetra Gupta is one of the leading epidemiologists in the world. She's a professor and infectious disease expert at Oxford University in the U.K., We've spoken about her before because she, along with Martin Kaldorf at Harvard and Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, are the original drafters of the Great Barrington Declaration that has now more than 20,000 signatories that are from the medical and public health community. She uh, is also somebody who's been mugged by the reality of the left and of the politicization of COVID-19 and the response. She writes at the American Institute for Economic Research, Lockdown is a blunt, indiscriminate policy that forces the poorest and most vulnerable people to bear the brunt of the fight against coronavirus. As an infectious diseases epidemiologist, I believe there has to be a better way. And this is why she participated in the drafting of the alternative approach as memorialized in the Great Barrington Declaration. This is why she opposes lockdowns, because there has to be a better way. The cost outweighs the benefit. But she writes, I was utterly unprepared for the onslaught of insults, personal criticism, intimidation and threats that met our proposal. The level of vitriol and hostility, not just from members of the public online, but from journalists and academics, has horrified me. She writes, I am first and foremost a scientist, one who's far more comfortable sitting in my office or laboratory than in front of a television camera. Not political. Although, she writes, of course, I do have deeply held political ideals, ones that I would describe as inherently left wing. I would not, it is fair to say, normally align myself with the Daily Mail, which is a conservative-leaning British tabloid. I have strong views about the distribution of wealth, about the importance of the welfare state, about the need for publicly owned utilities and government investment in nationalized industries. 
But COVID-19 is not a political phenomenon. It's a public health issue. Well, it was a public health issue. Now it is a political phenomenon, isn't it? But it's interesting here again, we know the medical community, especially the public health community and epidemiologists specifically as a profession lean far left, or I should say lean decidedly left. I mean, an overwhelming majority identify left of some of the research I've seen into that particular profession. And Sunetra Gupta is one of them, except when it comes to her actual area of expertise where she's a scientist. And she's making assessments based on the merits of the response to what she understands about the virus. And for that, now she's a charlatan. Just like that. You can go from one of the world's leading epidemiologists to a complete charlatan. What do you have to do? Disagree with with the Western media, basically. And a few other epidemiologists who are more politician than scientists who want to take advantage of the climate to elevate their profile. And how do you become a celebrity? Agree with the Western media. David Galertner, renowned computer science professor at Yale, had a good piece in the journal about uh, the fairy tale nature of what the left is selling the public as with respect to COVID-19, particularly Joe Biden. Instead of a careful, serious, scientifically informed and fast solution to the COVID problem, Mr. Biden offers his good fairy waiting impatiently in the wings. The COVID fairy explains why Democrats can't answer any serious questions about their plan. Who will develop the new drugs? Roughly how long should it take? What kind of head start has the president's Operation Warp Speed supplied? Does the new approach center on disease management or a vaccine or both? How many vaccine doses will be available and for whom? Democrats are at a loss because the good fairy won't say. But the bottom line is this. One wave of her magic wand and the COVID fairy will make everything better. David Gallertner makes the point, eventually a President Biden, were he to be elected, would be, to for, would be forced to do what Mr. Trump is doing already, provide as much federal support as possible for the new drugs and treatments we need. Well, yes, that's number one. He, in addition, more generally, I would add, he's going to be forced to do what Trump has been doing for the last 10 months as well, which is to say you have to make tough decisions in the real world where there are trade-offs that are going to be born by, as a result of the decisions you make. But the COVID fairy doesn't have to make those decisions. Just like the COVID fairy doesn't have to make decisions with respect to the infirmities of the attempted backdoor takeover of healthcare in America called Obamacare, which will now morph into Biden care with a public option to compete with private health insurance plans. So saith Joe Biden on the debate stage. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Chad Savage, founder of Your Choice Direct Care and policy advisor to the Heartland Institute. Before we get to the COVID ferry, let's start with the uh, health insurance ferry in America and Joe Biden's plans to uh, make health care better at lower cost for all Americans through more government control. Boy, oh boy, you laid it out really well, the Barrington Declaration, and I'm actually a co-signer of that as well. Uh Uh-oh, now you're a charlatan. (laughs) But yeah, actually, Biden talks a lot about health care, both in regard to COVID and in regard to financing healthcare, but he's very scant on the specifics. And what blows me away is what you can glean from what he said so far, and he's done this with posters and such large signs behind him during his speeches, is that he's going to double down on the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, Biden Care, which to me is just mind-boggling for people to actually buy that as a positive sentiment. They need only forget what's happened over the last 10 years. Actually, I used to be an insurance doc and hospital practice And what drove me out of that into what's called direct primary care, which I work now directly for my patients, was the realization of what was going on within ACA. It was devastating, the practice of medicine. People seem to have forgotten, and and the general 
you know, if you listen to the ads and his speeches, it sounds like healthcare didn't exist before ACA, and that's just simply not true. It was definitely broken at that time, but ACA didn't fix it. It kicked in the cracks and made them into huge holes. Since you uh, are a great Barrington Declaration signatory and made mention of COVID, get your reaction from a practitioner in the space, a pediatrician here in Illinois. The surge you're hearing about in the media is real. Hospitalizations are hospitals are up. ICU beds are reaching capacity. Our numbers of patients who test positive in our offices is up. More employees are reporting exposures, mostly from household contacts. For the most part, this is not just due to school reopening. It's not due to travel. It's not due to eating at restaurants. The driving force behind the current surge seems to be gatherings in homes, birthday parties, larger family get-togethers, informal dinner parties, and so forth. We've known this actually for some time, that transmission mainly occurs in households, and so the response is to lock people in their houses <laughs> until at some point there's a vaccine. Then will that allow them to come out and re-engage with their neighbors and reconnect with their businesses and so forth? That seems to be the policy. They didn't put it in those words, but those are the words. And so they're telling a lie about one thing in order to get an outcome they want. They're telling a lie about uh, transmission outside, transmission in restaurants, transmission in other public places, transmission at Trump rallies. So as the predicate to lock you in your home, hopefully with uh, nobody else visiting or or allowed. So if the virus spreads, it stays contained within your family. And uh, then we'll let you know when it's safe to come out, ostensibly when we have a vaccine and we have a distribution mechanism that can get it down to the hoi polloi so that you can once again rejoin society. Yeah, and it's not even uh, when we get a vaccine because now that goalpost is moving as well. I mean, it started, as you recall, with 15 days to stop the spread was intended solely to preserve hospital capacity. It was to buy us time. And that is actually the stance when people talk about various experts and the censorship that's coming to people like the signatures of the Great Barrington Declaration. The original intent was never to cure COVID. You can't hide your way out of COVID. It was to allow for a building up of hospital capacity to be able to handle a surge. And thank God we actually did that. We did not largely have nationwide overutilization of our capacity, which would have resulted in unnecessary deaths. That largely didn't occur. The president actually was successful in accomplishing that. But as soon as that passed, then it went from preserving hospital capacity to somehow this was a treatment. And this is not a treatment. At best, it just delays the inevitable, which could be valid if you had some miracle cure weeks away. But this was back in March and April. We're quite a ways away from that now. So now you hear, well, it's the vaccine. So that, you know, well, maybe there is a miracle cure, right? Or some treatment of the vaccine. But now those goalposts are moving once again. And you hear Cuomo and other people say, well, they're not going to trust the vaccine. Dr. Chad Savage, founder of Your Choice Direct Care and policy advisor for the Heartland Institute. Dr. Savage, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Welcome back to the show from moving from our discussion with Dr. Chad Savage about uh, locking down the law abiding to a discussion of appeasing the non-law abiding, appeasing the violent. And again, in preparation for election night where there is uh, violence anticipated in big cities, the appeasers are putting their action plans into place. And they should be Portland over the weekend. You think this has stopped? It hasn't stopped. 
Cops declare riot in Portland as Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters smash shop windows after March against capitalism. I'm just surprised there are still shop windows to smash in Portland. Uh, In Evanston, Illinois, uh, where I matriculated at Northwestern University, those oppressed Northwestern University students rioting uh, in downtown Evanston, Illinois, just north of Chicago, uh, they uh, also, you know, defund the police, defund the campus police. We're against capitalism, even though our parents made enough money to send us to $60,000 a year school, so on and so forth. The usual stuff, except they were throwing bricks and uh, essentially uh, fireworks, but, but you know, like M80 fireworks, like explosives at police. So there was at least one Northwestern University student arrested. And that. So what do you think will be on tap for tomorrow, particularly if it looks like it's going Trump's way? Well, there's preparations being made. Wolf Blitzer took note. I never thought I would see so many buildings here in the nation's capital boarded up on the eve of a presidential election in anticipation of possible arrest, possible unrest, excuse me, arrest, probably not so possible. And it's not just in D.C. It's happening in New York, Los Angeles and elsewhere around the country. So sad. Uh, I will see my response to uh, Richard Grinnell, former acting DNI ambassador to Germany. And he's speaking to the entire D.C. press corps with this reaction to Wolf Blitzer's tweet. You fan the flames for chaos, riots and vandalism. You've led the most vicious, negative and political attacks on the president. You fed the American people a Russian collusion lie for four years. Stop pretending like you are shocked. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Corey Mills was a U.S. Army combat veteran, founder and CEO of PaceM Solutions International and PaceM Defense LLC. Corey, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. No, thanks for having me back. Pleasure. Uh, what about uh, the uh, actions law enforcement are taking in lieu, the, to the extent they're allowed to by their civilian political authorities uh, in anticipation of what may come to pass tomorrow night, particularly in big urban centers, but not necessarily exclusively there? Well, again, this goes back to a lot of the Democrat-controlled cities that leadership told them in the event that they are going to be robbed or mugged. Here's a how-to, uh, you know, tutorial on how to properly be robbed and how to properly be mugged and how to properly, uh, essentially, lose your ability of safety and rights. You know, the fact that we're looking at continued lawlessness as an acceptable measure, and that we're restricting our law enforcement departments and trying to defund them as opposed to defend, which, by the way, is a whole conversation in itself, is absolutely absurd. These are the same cities that after their cities are destroyed, looted, rioted, and arsonists basically go forward and destroy things. They want the rest of the country's taxpayers to essentially bail them out. So for them failing and being able to be a proper leader and continue to have civil, uh, I guess, civility within the actual cities themselves, they want you as taxpayers to go ahead and pay for this. And, you know, the fact that they're talking about the idea that, oh, well, we should bring out social workers and we should go ahead and do all these things. All right, well, let's talk about that idea. Let's talk about the fact that this is now going to be an increase to the actual law enforcement departments. There's going to be necessary trainings that need to be put in place. We already know that many of the law enforcement departments are not adequately funded, which is why there's issues in some of the more rural areas. And so, you know, for me, it's one of those things that, you know, they say one thing, which is, all right, we want to do more with our law enforcement, but at the same time, they restrict them and then try to defund them, but ask for more. If you think about just the simple you know, just just logic of all this, 
you'll know very quickly that it has nothing to do with trying to maintain stability, has nothing to do with trying to gain law and order, and everything to do with trying to blame this on the Republican GOP party. Well, and uh, to your point, I mean, uh, Philadelphia, in the wake of the rioting there last week in response to a police-involved shooting, uh, the city council voted to ban the use of tear gas to disperse crowds. This is after, as at least as of Friday, 58 police officers had sustained injuries, 443 incidents of looting. Rioters used explosives in an attempt to break into 22 automated teller machines. They damaged 18 police and fire vehicles. And uh, you're supposed to persuade them to stop what they're doing. Uh, it seems to be the, the position. We'll pick it up there with Corey Mills right after this. Corey Mills, U.S. Army combat veteran, founder and CEO of PaceM Solutions International, PaceM Defense LLC. We'll be right back. Oh, yeah, it was like lightning. Everybody was frightening. And the music was soothing. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Corey Mills, U.S. Army combat veteran, founder and CEO of Pace M Solutions and uh, International, uh, Pace M Solutions International, excuse me, and Pace M Defense LLC. Uh, Corey, before the break, we were talking about uh, the rioting and the continued looting that's gone on in places like Portland and in Philadelphia last week and the response. And it it seems to me that uh, one of the uh, closing arguments that uh, one would make if they were a supporter of President Trump is the idea that Antifa is an idea rather than an actual domestic terrorist organization. The idea that uh, law and order is... um, something that should be pursued or something that shouldn't be pursued because of systemic racism or some other identitarian explanation or argument, that's on the ballot on Tuesday. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And if you actually go over to Newsmax.com, I wrote an entire article based on the premise that Trump does not look at ideologies as just a mere myth. He does not look at terrorism as just a mere ideology. You know, you're talking someone who spent over seven years in Iraq, over two and a half years in Afghanistan, time in Pakistan, time in Somalia. I was there during the Kosovo campaign as well, which my kids don't even remember what Slobodan Milosevic really was about. But I've seen where these radicalized ideologies, you know, are beheading small children. I've watched where these radicalized ideologies have enslaved thousands of people and forced human sexual trafficking. I've watched where these ideologies have destroyed entire cities and entire regions with like men of the province in Iraq. So the idea that we're going to continue to shuttle off this organized group who is being adequately funded, therefore having intent and also having capability is a bit of a joke. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris both know that the Antifa.com website has been hyperlinked in a way to try and raise funding against the Harris campaign. They've known this for months now and have done nothing to try and prevent that. You know, if, if, if I was pushing this in a legal sense and I was saying that you were aware of this knowledge and you failed to do anything in that, that makes you complicit. And so the fact that the www.antifa.com redirects you straight to the Biden-Harris donation page should tell you something. Well, I'll tell you, it's also 
you know, we have the question, are you better off than you were four years ago? Fifty six percent of Americans say yes. The question, are you safer than you were four years ago? Uh, internationally, the question is undeniably yes. Domestically, it's undeniably no. And it has nothing. It has little to do with President Trump. And so that's why this is such an important choice. But let's sp- uh, stick internationally for a second, since you, know, you were mentioning your combat service and where we were with ISIS, for example, when Trump took office versus where we are today. And now what you see, actually, not just uh, not just the eradication of ISIS, but also the advancement of peace uh, with an underreported story because of everything else going on. Yet another country that was hostile to uh, Israel announcing a uh, reopening of diplomatic relations, normalization of diplomatic relations with Israel, and that is Sudan. So these uh, African as well as Middle Eastern countries uh, trying to uh, constructively engage with Israel, and that's uh, that's an advance of peace uh, across both of those regions. Absolutely. And again, let's go ahead and look at this. Under the Obama-Biden administration, we saw ISIS grow to its largest strength possible. They were receiving up to $1 million in oil revenue per day that was being shared between the Chion port, which is there in Turkey, and it was well known that this was going on. The Obama administration continued to draw these red line narratives that they continue to throw out if there is any chlorine gas that is utilized, if there's any, you know, abuse against the citizens of Syria, if there's any and nothing was ever being done. It wasn't until this president came forward and actually took the fight to ISIS, to Daesh, that actually defeated them and broke them down. It was this president who did the, who conducted the airstrike that killed Jihadi John, the same person who decapitated the American journalist. It is this president who went after and killed al-Baghdadi. It was this president who went out and did a counterterrorism strike on Qasem Soleimani, who's responsible for over 600 American deaths and thousands who were mutilated. I in 2006 in April, was the recipient of one of these EFPs that actually hit our vehicle, getting three out of the five guys in the vehicle and injuring and taking out one of the off, taking off the shoulders of one of my guys in my vehicle. So, wow. you know, it was this president who's continued to go forward and make the necessary action. He's the one that would never have allowed Benghazi to have taken place. And if he was the president, it's very likely that Ambassador Stevens, Tyrone, uh, Woods, Glenn Doherty, and Sean Smith would still be here today. And I would even argue that the failure to continue to act, even though he had credible intelligence in the Obama-Biden administration to go after Kayla Mueller, likely resulted in her death as well. So there is absolutely, without any fraction of a doubt, from someone who's, you know, I've done over a thousand plus different counterterrorism operations and high-value target missions. I can tell you right now, when you have credible intel, where there's an actual high-value target who's going to continue to move rapidly and he's not going to sit in one spot, you have to act. That failure to act under the Obama-Biden administration is what was allowing the you know, continuation of this radicalized ideology to expand and spread. And now, not only has this president not started a new war over the last four years, unlike the previous administrations, he's actually drawn down the Afghan peace plan. He's actually gone forward, as you noted, after 26 years of no one signing, normalized their relationship with Israel, he's now allowed three countries, any other president just for breathing like Obama did, would get the you know, Nobel Peace Prize, but not President Trump. So, again, I go back to the originals. Let's not look at whether or not you like a person's tweets or whether you like what a person says. Let's run off record. Let's run off of what has actually taken place. Do you want a president who's great as a speaker? Great. There's tons of political politicians out there who will actually, you know, do an excellent job going and articulating points, points that they'll never actually do, but they'll sound really great doing it. Or you can go with a president who's actually taken action. 
that's what we have under President Trump, and we need another four years of that. And, and the, the unique thing in this race, relatively unique, is that you have both candidates with substantial records from the executive position, Joe Biden as vice president, President Trump, obviously, as president, rather than just people who voted on this authorization or that authorization. No, both have made material decisions, uh, been been uh, architects of and and uh, proponents of a specific vision for America's place in the world. So, and and they, they come more, one right after the other. So you really can put them side by side and make a decision about, you know, what has produced better results for American security. Absolutely. And not just American security, but the economy overall. And let's look at the veteran affairs. Obama and Biden talk about how there is no scandals underneath their administration like there is now. Apparently, they forgot Eric Holder's Fast and Furious. Apparently, they forgot about Benghazi and those four. And so, again, I go back to their record, 47 months versus 47 years. Go back and look at it for yourself. Do a head-to-head comparison. Let's see who's done more to try and secure our borders, increase our economy, better our veterans, and try to protect us overseas. I think undoubtedly you'll come to the same conclusion that I have. He is Corey Mills, U.S. Army combat veteran, founder and CEO of Paysom Solutions and Paysom Solutions International and Paysom Defense LLC. Corey, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Such a pleasure. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Just following on our conversation with uh, Corey Mills, U.S. Army combat veteran about uh, security, both international and national in orientation, as well as domestic in orientation. Uh, Hunter Biden a little quick Hunter Biden update. Jake Tapper over at CNN broke ranks over the weekend. I mean, as much as this constitutes breaking ranks in an interview with the uh, outgoing Congressman Joe Kennedy, the third Jake Tapper characterized uh, Hunter Biden's deal with Burisma thusly. You know, it's true that there's no evidence of any wrongdoing by Vice President Biden or that Hunter Biden uh, broke any laws at all. But frankly, it does stink that Hunter Biden got this contract with no expertise uh, in the energy sector. Uh, and he likely, he's already said, basically, he probably got that money, which was significant because of his connection uh, with his father, the vice president at the time, who was also in charge of Ukraine at the time. Uh, do you think uh, that future presidents and vice presidents should say, my relatives cannot cash in in any way on their connection to me? Look, I think it is certainly, uh, I, I, yeah. I think it's- J.K. the third uh, stumbled through that a bit. Joe Kennedy, the third. Here's the thing about Hunter Biden, that, well, in addition to the obvious statement by Tapper, the questions that are not being asked that are about Hunter, but are about Biden, Inc., Biden, the corporation. Another bizarre story. NBC News reporting that another laptop, yet another one belonging to Hunter Biden, taken into custody by the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency, in February while executing a search warrant in the Massachusetts office of former celebrity psychiatrist Keith Abloh, who had his medical license suspended uh, amid allegations of sexually exploiting patients and illegally diverting prescription drugs. Abloh has denied the allegations, hasn't been charged with any crime. Uh, NBC also reported Hunter Biden was not a target of the search or the investigation, and his lawyer got his laptop back. But why was the laptop with Keith Abloh or in Keith Abloh's office in the first place? 
it's interesting. They asked questions of Keith Ablo such that he had his medical license suspended, even though he's been charged with no crimes. But the same level of interest in Hunter Biden's foreign dealings is non-existent, even though when especially when you fold in his dad, they implicate our national security interests. It's just the most remarkable thing, most remarkable thing. And we're not going to get a reckoning until after the election. And the only way I suspect it will be material or there's a possibility of it being material is with Trump's reelection, of course. And this is, I think, in part what uh, some protesters outside Attorney General Barr's house in McLean, Virginia, the point they were trying to make over the weekend. Did you see this? At least a dozen people standing alongside a white horse in the street in front of Attorney General Barr's home. Uh, Signs including equal justice is coming, Biden lies matter, and so on and so forth. Um, Yeah. Why is there a horse outside Bill Barr's house, asked Daily Beast editor at large Molly Jung fast. How did the white horse get there and why? Golly, uh, Molly, can you put, put this together? They're looking for someone to ride in on a white horse. Are you not familiar with that metaphor? Oh, the density of the D.C. press corps, in addition to their cravenness. This is Dan Proff. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. In endorsing their first Republican presidential candidate since 1972, they couldn't bring themselves to endorse George McGovern. He won one state. They can't bring themselves to endorse Joe Biden. I think he's going to do better than one, but it may be one that makes the difference, the state in which the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette is located. Uh, They write in their endorsement, under Mr. Trump, our trade trade relationships have vastly improved and our trade deals have been rewritten. Thanks to him, Middle America is on the map again, and the Appalachian and hourly worker has some hope. Has Mr. Trump done enough for these struggling fellow citizens? No, but he recognized them. Maybe he was not articulate, but he recognized their pain. No one ever asked the American people or the people in flyover country if they wanted to send their jobs abroad until Mr. Trump. He has moved the debate in both parties from free trade, totally unfettered, to managed or fair trade. He has put America first, just as he said he would. Um, I don't completely agree with that statement, but it's an interesting perspective. At least the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette is representing the interests of their readers, something you don't see in a lot of, from a lot of daily newspapers in big cities around America. Their, their uh, courage, if you will, to endorse President Trump on the merits. He also, uh, they also make the obvious point. Let's talk about one of our most important concerns in this region, energy. Under Mr. Trump, the United States achieved energy independence for the first time in the lifetimes of most of us. Where would Western Pennsylvania be without the Shell petrochemical complex? Uh, And uh, they also mentioned that uh, uh, Trump is uh, not Trump's uh, uh, hard line with respect to China. Uh, He they say uh, Trump. uh, uh, But by contrast, I should say the Biden Harris ticket. Uh, offers an end to fracking and other cuckoo California dreams that will cost the economy and the people who most need work right now. Good paying green jobs are probably not jobs for Pittsburgh or Cleveland or Toledo or Youngstown. And endorsing President Trump mainly on matters related to the economic interests of 
the residents of Western Pennsylvania. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Andy Puster, senior fellow at the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy, former CEO of CKE Restaurants for more than 16 years, following a career as an attorney, and he's also a former nominee for U.S. Labor Secretary, author of Getting America Back to Work, and It's Time to Let America Work Again. Andy, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, great to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. So uh, you must uh, be uh, pleasantly surprised and aligned with what uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette editorial board had to say. Yeah, like you, I agree with most of what they said. Uh, I think that uh, the president's done an incredible job for people from that part of the country. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio myself. That's where I was born. I lived there until I was 25. Went to Cleveland State University undergraduate school. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I think that they they are well representing the people in that area who did not ask that their jobs be sent overseas. They weren't consulted and uh, and their jobs were sent overseas. And we ended up with a terrible economic situation and under President Trump. We just had you know, 2019 was the most incredible year for the American economy ever. Uh, and I think uh, it will be the year against which all future years are measured, yet wh- whoever's elected president. It was really a spectacular year for American workers. It's just uh, you're just trying to r- remind people of what they used to know to be true against the backdrop of a year of uh, a, uh, uh, a D.C. press corps that is particularly focused at trying to hang uh, COVID-19 around the president's neck. And so that, of course, is dominated. But, yes, you're right. Phil Graham former Texas senator, chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, writing in the Wall Street Journal, uh, median earnings for men rose 11 percent more from 2017 through 2019 under Trump than during the Obama-Biden years. Earnings for women rose 42 percent more in 2019 alone than in the seven years during the entire Obama-Biden recovery. I mean, that is a jarring statistic. It's one probably President Trump should be talking about more at the rallies. Well, you know, and, and just to follow up on what Phil was saying, we in 2019, you had 12 months where wage growth was over 3%, as either 3% or better. During the Obama years, you didn't have one month in the entire uh, post-recession Obama administration under Obama and Biden where wages wage growth exceeded 3%. And that's for everybody. It was actually higher for workers. Uh, if you look at job openings, we had 12 straight months in 2019 of more job openings and people unemployed. And in most of those months, it was over 1 million more job openings and people unemployed. During the Obama-Biden years, we didn't have a single month where job openings exceeded people unemployed. And when he left office, we had nearly 2 million more people unemployed than job openings. So you see, and, and the results were spectacular. Medium family income saw the largest increase since they, the government's been tracking the data in the 1960s. It rose to the highest point. $68,700 it's ever hit. And poverty had the biggest drop for a single year, 1.3 percentage points. And it went down to 10.5%, which is the, the uh, lowest it's been since, again, since the government began tracking the data back in 1959. So it, it was it was a year for the record books. Uh, and but for that virus from China, I think we would we would have seen 2020 come in even stronger uh, and we would be, everybody would be uh, just waiting for President Trump to start his second term. You're right. They've done the best they could. The media has to pin this virus on the president. And uh, hopefully they won't succeed. But we'll we'll know tomorrow. Uh, hopefully uh, we'll know tomorrow. Yeah, hopefully we'll know tomorrow. And um, as somebody who is the CEO of a restaurant group, uh, it, it must be stunning to you the relative lack of concern that uh, mainly the left part of the political class has for 
the frontline workers uh, in the hospitality industry, including restaurants. I mean, they just the, the lockdown and bust artists uh, all around the country and, and frankly, in Western Europe, too. They just uh, seem blithely unconcerned about the livelihoods of people that are lower to middle income families. Well, you know, I, I think it's a it's a good perspective on the left because the left, the, the, the socialist collectivist ideology that they have, the idea that that elitist in government can better run our lives than we can run it. And then they can somehow reach some you know, social nirvana or this idealistic society. That goal for them supersedes everything. It supersedes truth. It supersedes honesty. It supersedes the welfare of people. It, it, you know, for, if you look back at the dictators going back to. And, you know, to Hitler and Mao and Stalin and even Castro and Che Guevara and uh, Maduro in Venezuela. Human life means very little to them. Jobs mean very little to them. The well-being of the people mean very little to them. Everything takes a second, takes a backstage. Everything is set back if in, 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 the, um, in the effort to achieve this goal of a collectivist ideal society. And, and it, it's, it's very sad. And you see that coming through with workers today. The, the, the Democrats have been very clear since this virus thing came over from China that this was an opportunity to transform America. This was their opportunity to enact policies that you never could get past the American people in normal times. And they have done everything they could to exaggerate the extent uh, of the of the pandemic. Uh, they've done everything they could to use it to destroy the Trump presidency. And it didn't matter to them if the jobs of people in restaurants or or other low wage uh, low wage positions were destroyed. They it's just the point is to win. The point for them isn't to do good. It's to be the victor. And it isn't to tell the truth either. Either you did a good breakdown at uh, in a column at FoxBusiness.com of the Trump tax cuts that are of course being attacked as just tax cuts for the wealthy and uh, by the numbers as you broke it out that clearly was not the case. Well, you know, I wish I'd written that article a month or so ago. I just when I heard Biden talking in one of his town halls about 1.3 trillion of 2 trillion in tax benefits under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act going to, you know, Trump's wealthy friends, the rich people. You know, I said, you know, that ought to show up in the data and I could compare 2017 before the tax cuts to 2018. So I went and dug into the IRS data and it turned out that the American people paid 64 billion dollars less in taxes in 2018 because of the tax cuts. But the one percent that Biden always talks about, they actually paid 16 billion more in taxes than they did the year before. The middle class paid 31 billion dollars less. They got half of the almost half, about 48 percent of that 64 dollar billion dollar reduction went to the middle class. Everything that the Democrats have been claiming about the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was simply false. It just wasn't true. The benefits did go to the middle class. They did go to low wage workers and they did not go. To the upper one percent, who actually ended up paying not only more in dollars at sixteen billion, but a higher percentage of total taxes, they went up to forty percent. So it was um, I, I'm, I'm, it was good to get it out before the election. I wish I'd have gotten that out a month ago. He is Andy Puzder, senior fellow at the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy, former CEO of CKE Restaurants for more than sixteen years, following a career as an attorney, and a former nominee for U.S. Labor Secretary. His books, "Getting America Back to Work" and "It's Time to Let America Work Again." Andy, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. Take care. And uh, coming up after the break, we're going to talk to Jovita Carranza, the administrator for the Small Business Administration, about what relief may be forthcoming after the election for small businesses. So stay tuned for that. 
to the Dan Prof Show. So on my show on Friday, I interviewed John Taffer. Yes, John Taffer from Bar Rescue. A really, really interesting guy for his podcast, the John Taffer Show podcast. He interviewed President Trump last week to talk about uh, the hospitality industry specifically. And he's a bit of a wild man as John Taffer, but nobody knows the industry like he does, and particularly the restaurant industry. It's a fascinating discussion he had with Trump, and then I was fortunate to have with him. You can Check it out at danprofshow.com. I also tweeted it out at danprofshow. Uh, here's the one key thing that he got from Trump. Four points, four promises that Trump made for the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry generally, restaurant industry specifically, that could produce a V-shaped recovery for the hospitality industry come post-election. One is to broaden the scope of the employee retention tax credit. Two, to extend or reintroduce a payroll protection program that also covered debt, debt accumulated over the past eight months, restaurants and hospitality industry businesses that particularly those subject to on again, off again lockdowns in big cities. The third and uh, Taffer highlights this as a biggie. He knows this sector a lot better than I do. Reintroduce the business lunch tax credit, implement the business meal right off immediately. Taffer said, I think that would have an immediate positive impact on business. And then fourth, a domestic travel incentive program to incentivize any sort of domestic air travel, which is obviously hugely important to destination convention cities like Vegas, Miami, as well as bus- Chicago, as well as business markets like New York, L.A., Chicago. So those are uh, commitments he made that he said seemed to suggest Trump was ready to move on right after the election, regardless of outcome. By the way, Taffer also invited Biden to be on his podcast, talk about the same thing, and the Biden campaign never got back to him. So he's not coming from this because he's necessarily some die-in-the-wool Republican or Trump supporter. He's just interested in his industry and trying to help revive it. One other thing he said is is that the industry has been impacted unevenly across the country, as you'd expect, even in big cities. So, for example, New Jersey, the restaurant industry, in terms of sales, volume— has actually increased year over year. How could that be? Because of the lockdowns in New York and Connecticut and the flight to New Jersey for hospitality, you know, hospitality offerings. The other thing he said is that Chicago going to a lockdown and no in-person dining, the only state in the country to do that, he said that's a huge mistake. He said with the incentives that President Trump talked about if they came to pass, I think he said, this is him saying it, he thinks that the restaurant industry could rebound by the end of the first quarter of next year. But he said Chicago is going to be a lot longer because there's an exponential negative drag on another lockdown like is being done in Chicago and Illinois. And so he just essentially suggests that it's a disastrous decision for Chicago and Illinois. So just highlighting that because that is distinct from what's happening around the country, even in states 
with leftist governors who are otherwise inclined to lock down policy. Still, Chicago and Illinois making the most catastrophic decision you could make with respect to the hospitality industry, according to John Taffer. For more on all of this and uh, small business recovery, please be joined again by Jovita Carranza. She is the administrator for the U.S. Small Business Administration, former treasurer of the United States at the U.S. Department of Treasury as well. Jovita, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. It's a real pleasure. Uh, with respect to uh, what uh, John Taffer was talking about with the hospitality industry, and then also uh, talk more globally about uh, another PPP or some other kind of program for small businesses, what is in, in the offing? Is what uh, John Taffer got out of the president? Is that part of discussions you've been in as well? Well, Dan, he hit it on the mark because the president has placed small businesses front and center in every discussion he's had. And, and my visits across the nation are an example of this administration's leadership and diligent work to reopen the economy, and not, not only the national economy, the local economies. But as you know, Dan, in many cases, the local economies are governed, obviously, by the governors and the mayors. So if they put some cap on the amount of capacity or the ability to open 100 percent, that's all determined based on local government and then, of course, the COVID spike. What I've realized, Dan, in visiting many of the restaurants and also entertainment bars where they contract musicians to come and perform, those were the first ones I visited because they were hit the hardest, as you know. And I visited initially in the month of May and June, and some of them were open 20%, maybe 25%. Now they're open 40 to 50%, but that's only 50% of the revenues. I just left San Diego uh, last week, and that restaurant is open um, 50%. It's a beautiful uh, restaurant uh, in San Diego, right by the art museum, and um, she's struggling. She has over 140 employees. She can't bring them all back, and uh, the customer base is a little squeamish with regards to the COVID, so she's uh, complying with the, the uh, COVID uh, CDC distancing and the mask and whatnot, but they are are truly hit hard. And this president has indicated that the small businesses would realize a tax benefit uh, if he were elected and another round of PPP. We've been working really long and hard to protect the $130 billion that remain under the Paycheck Protection Program, a third round of PPP. And and what about rather than any sort of lump sum bailout to the airlines, uh, uh, what about something on the order of what apparently was discussed between President Trump and John Taffer, the domestic travel incentives to get people who want to move around the country or incentivize them to move around the country if that's what they were otherwise inclined to do, to do so, because, of course, that has – uh, a ripple effect on small businesses around the country as well that are part of the hospitality industry uh, and rely on uh, you know people traveling conventions and this and the like. Yes, as a matter of fact, though, the restaurants that I visited then were very strategic. I went to Louisiana. I went to all the hotspots that where there's significant conferences, as as you indicated, and recreational um, travel, such as in Florida. I went to Tampa. Uh, and I also went to Orlando, which is, as you know, uh, a children's world. And then I also visited Miami. And so all of them are, are looking forward to accessing the PPP because it's about retaining their infrastructure. It's about retaining their employees. And they have been hurt. Now, you specified the airline. I've been flying, I would say, 50% of the time. And the other time, I, I drive for safety reasons. But the flights are either... 100% or 90% capacity, and that's all local markets. I haven't done any international, it's all domestic. And uh, I know that the Secretary of Treasury 
is working with the White House uh, as well as uh, the House and Small Business Committee to address that particular um, that particular industry sector, especially domestic, because as you know, we transport military, we transport business, and uh, all of those uh, have to be sustained uh, in order to protect not only our national economy, which, actually, as you know, represents about 10 to $11 trillion and 31 million small businesses, but also our national security. We have military people moving from base to base, and um, that's also necessary for national security. She is Jovita Carranza, Administrator of the U.S. Small Business Administration, former Treasurer of the United States at the U.S. Department of Treasury as well. Jovita Carranza, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, earlier in the program, we've discussed uh, two, actually really three interesting case studies uh, relevant to the conversation we're having with our, going to have with our next guest. Dr. Sunetra Gupta from Oxford University, who's uh, been branded uh, some sort of charlatan by the uh, Western media for uh, daring to disagree with their orthodoxy on lockdown policies as a response to COVID, despite the fact that five minutes earlier she was widely considered one of the leading epidemiologists and infectious disease experts in the world. She out of Oxford University. The uh, case of Jody Shaw who has taken to video to protest the working conditions at Smith College, where she attended because of the oppressive identitarian nature of said conditions. She is not she, she is treated as nothing other than her skin color. She doesn't much like it. She does also doesn't much like the mobocracy, whereby any assertion by a student of being uh, of suffering from one of the isms or phobias uh, could land you out of a job or your reputation in ruins. And also Clay Travis writing about his endorsement, support, vote for President Trump, even though he hasn't voted for a Republican at least since 2004 because of what the Democratic Party to which he used to affiliate has become. And so what is the track we are on? Our next author suggests uh, perhaps there is a Weimarization of the Republic going on, and there are a lot of Uh, comparisons have been made to the run-up to the Reich. Uh, uh, Our friend Dominic Green over at The Spectator suggests it's more sort of a Habsburg uh, dynasty, Austro-Hungarian dynastic ruling class that we're trending towards. I don't know if I like those two choices. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Aaron Sabarium. He is the associate editor of the Washington Free Beacon, a contributing editor at American Purpose, and a blogger for American Compass. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for having me. Now, you uh, write in your piece, America is not Weimar. We have not lost a war or been forced to pay war debt. We've had 250 years of democracy, not 25. Trump isn't Hitler and Biden, whatever his faults, isn't calling for communism. There is street violence, but a lot less of it. For unlike Weimar, we do not generally let paramilitary groups supplant the police. Generally, Seattle's autonomous zone being the exception. But the exceptions are mounting. Um, so, uh, you know, t- distill that for us a bit. We're not the Weimar Republic. There are there are these exceptions, but the exceptions are mounting. Uh, are we are we trending towards Weimarization of America or is this uh, something uh, markedly different than ultimately the path Germany took? Well, the answer to your question is is both. We are, I think, trending towards not Weimar Germany exactly, but but we're seeing certain dynamics that I think recall the mutual radicalization and polarization of Weimar and the governance problems that attended that. Uh, the street violence that I think is kind of one symptom of the polarization, though my essay actually focuses more on sort of deeper uh, ideological and cultural trends, including the sort of anathematization of our founding. Um, that is a very big similarity to Weimar. Um, but the reason the answer to your question is both is that although we are kind of developing certain Weimar-esque characteristics, there are some pretty important uh, differences from Weimar, one of which, and it's far from the only one, is that the left rather than the right controls the culture and the universities and a lot of other powerful institutions here. And in Weimar, Germany, it was really the opposite, where the right kind of from the start had a cultural and structural advantage um, in the society. Uh, And furthermore, I think you can argue that wokeness, as it's called, uh, sort of emerges out of America's Puritan Protestant roots. And the kind of conservatism that's often associated with Trump, it has certain American precedents, but it also borrows in certain ways from European traditions that don't really have a home here. And that's a pretty big asymmetry with Weimar, which means I really don't think we're going to end up with a sort of right-wing dictatorship anytime soon. And I don't think we're going to end up with a left-wing dictatorship really anytime soon But I do think that we could move in the direction of a kind of soft despotism that has a a undeniably kind of woke edge to it uh, at the end of this kind of radicalization spiral we're seeing. Yeah, well, let's uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about that soft despotism and just how soft it would actually be. It seems to be uh, I know it's a term that's used. It always struck me as a bit of an oxymoron, but. We'll uh, get Aaron uh, Sibarium's take on that. He's the associate editor at the Washington Free Beacon, contributing editor at American Purpose, and a blogger for American Compass. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Aaron Sabarium, associate editor at the Washington Free Beacon, contributing editor to American Purpose and a blogger for American Compass. 
talking about his piece at uh, uh, American Purpose, the Weimarization of the American Republic. And we left off the discussion with, uh, Aaron, your suggestion that we're not heading towards necessarily a a discernible right or left dictatorship, but maybe some sort of soft, woke despotism. Well, the the wokeness is coming decidedly from the left. And um, the the purge culture, I spoke a little bit about it earlier in the show. I referenced before the break uh, Jody Shaw at Smith College and how uh, she sort of acting until she came forward as the as, as Václav Havel's green grocer. She was going along with the lies, what she knew to be untrue for fear of speaking out at Smith College until she had had enough and, and, and want, believes that private conversations she's having with her fellow employees at Smith College need to be made public. And this seems to be a dynamic that is repeating itself in various fashions throughout American culture uh, with the backing of big tech to uh, provide a a uh, 21st century element or 21st century mechanism of suppression. And so I just wonder, you know, how that culture, uh, where that culture leads if it is not throttled. And and again, look at how much it's advanced over the past four years, even without the White House and without the Senate. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think that's right. And, And I would say big tech, well, you know, big tech is not a Soviet dictatorship, it does have censorship capacities that are pretty scary. And I do worry about a a world in which Google, Twitter, and Facebook really can control a lot of what people see. Um, What gives me some moderate optimism is that for different reasons, both sides really hate big tech now. Um, And maybe the best thing we can hope for is that it gets caught up in a kind of uh, polarized regulatory battle in Congress that doesn't really have a super decisive outcome, but maybe scares them away from doing anything too terribly radical with censorship. Well, that's an optimistic scenario. Yeah. I'm saying it's optimistic. I mean, yeah, but because, I mean, Possible. clearly the, the hearing last week that featured uh, Dorsey, Zuckerberg and uh, Punchai, uh, Punchai uh, from Google. Um, yeah, the, the, the Democrats were pretty strong proponents of their censorship policies, maybe not their the wealth they've amassed. So, I mean, it's, it's sort of like when the DOJ went after Microsoft. That didn't change who Bill Gates was. You know, you, you, you got to peel off some of your yeah. money. But 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 in terms of the things that we like, you continue to go ahead and do those things as a fellow traveler. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the the wild card here is, you know, to what extent a future Republican uh, Congress or administration would actually be willing to wield the threat of regulation sort of sufficiently so that these companies actually uh you know, stopped, uh, stopped with the censorship. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not terribly optimistic that, uh, the Republican party will actually do that, but maybe they will. And that would be good. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, in, in general, the, the, the conversation about censorship and left-wing cancel culture and all this, it, it's important to understand that tech companies do have power and it's not governmental power, but when the government permits that sort of mass accretion of epistemic power, 
you know, you do have something that can really, right. uh, you know, change, change, affect, affect the conditions of discussion. And, and I do think that's a problem. And, you know, I, 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 I'm sympathetic to the argument that there's not a whole lot of regulation that can actually solve this in practice. But even if that's the case, I think we should at least be honest about this uh, kind of epistemic behemoth being a problem and, and something that we should lament. Well, right. And, and going back to something you referenced earlier, which is their ability to rewrite history, rewrite the history of America, yeah. the 1619 yeah. Project, which is uh, attacking on multiple fronts in K through 12 school systems, as well as in in uh, you know culture and pop culture more generally the ability to completely uh, gaslight uh younger generations as to the true history of america yeah no i mean and i think that's uh one of the most disturbing weimar-esque parallels just in that there is a now an increasing movement among the establishment it's not just the fringe to I mean, some would say that, you know, anathematize is a strong word, but to, to, to really, I think, demythologize at the very least the founding. And, you know, even if they say, well, we don't want people to hate it. We just want people to look at it in this context in which we're foregrounding slavery, blah, blah, blah. You know, the, the uncomfortable truth is that national narratives to, to be unifying there needs to be a message that the country is good and that the founding was good. And you don't have to deny that there were lots of bad things at the founding. Of course not. But, you know, if, if all you focus on is slavery and on demythologizing and on deconstructing, and you don't actually have a narrative that says, hey, for all their faults, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, those guys were good forces throughout American history, and we should revere them um, for all their faults, I worry that you will lose the kind of, you know, founding ritual that we used to have, and that I think, you know, has, has atrophied in recent years. And one thing I say in the essay is, you know, Weimar, they really did not have anything like the Declaration of Independence. Um, and that was not good for them. They had no unified founding moment. And our elites seem to be trying to uh, deconstruct our founding and not really put it back together. And I think that's a big issue. Aaron Sabarium, associate editor at the Washington Free Beacon, contributing editor, American Purpose and a blogger for American Compass. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Enjoyed the piece. Yeah, thank you so much. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show as we close out this Election Eve edition. Uh, if it doesn't go well tomorrow, uh, if it, and even if it does, if we trend towards uh, Weimarization or Habsburgization of America, as we were discussing with Aaron Sabarian, I got an out 
for you. Elon Musk declared Mars a free planet <laughs> that will not buy, abide by Earth-based laws. Under It stated uh, under the governing law of the company's planned colony for services provided on Mars or in transit to Mars via Starship or other colonization spacecraft. The parties recognize Mars as a free planet and that no Earth-based government has authority or sovereignty over Martian activities. <laughs> okay. All right. So we're starting over with Elon on Mars. That's our backup plan. You got that? Uh, while we're on this planet, I have to remark upon the passing of uh, the great actor, uh, Sean Connery, over the weekend at the age of 90. Really um, a couple of good pieces that I wanted to direct people's attention to, including one that has uh, him pictured with his wife. This is his wife, Michelle. This is from May of this year on the occasion of their 45th wedding anniversary. And it's just the two of them. It's just a poignant picture. Sean Connery passing away over the weekend at the age of 90 and suffering from dementia. His wife, Michelle, saying it was no life for him. He wasn't able to express himself. At least he died in his sleep. It was just so peaceful. It was with him all the time, and he just slipped away. It was what he wanted. He had dementia, and it took a toll on him. He got his final wish to slip away without any fuss. And, of course, the tributes rolled in as well including from President Trump. I just wanted to uh, talk about Sean Connery as a proud Scotsman first, (laughs) famously saying, I want to quote him accurately here, I'm not an Englishman. I was never an Englishman. I don't ever want to be one. I'm a Scotsman. I was a Scotsman, and I will always be one. Sort of the defiance of groundskeeper Willie in terms of his Scottish heritage, but no, it's great. And President Trump actually uh, had a connection with Sean Connery. He helped Trump gets a deal done to build a luxury golf resort in Scotland that he was having trouble with from the locals. He was quite a guy and a tough character, Trump said. I was having a very hard time getting approvals for a big development in Scotland when Sean stepped in and shouted, let him build the damn thing. <laughs> that was it. So, <laughs> and that's Trump said. That's what all I needed. Everything went swimmingly from there because he was so highly regarded and respected in Scotland. And Sean Connery did say, I look forward to seeing a new gem in the Northeast that is good for Aberdeenshire and good for Scotland, which is where the luxury golf resort that Trump built was located and the community council that he was having problems getting approval from. And, you know, he was a supporter. But, you know, obviously all the great movies, in addition to the Bond characters, just a storied life, uh, a a real, a a real unique individual, Um, you know, one of the uh, one of the artists which is what a great actor is, that really make life enjoyable. Sean Connery uh, passing away at the age of 90 and uh, fondly remembering his work, which will, because as, as it is with great artists, his, his work will continue on for generations, perhaps centuries beyond his time on this mortal coil. All right, uh, coming up uh, tomorrow night on election night, we'll be taking your calls uh, all three hours of my program as the results roll in. So uh, tune in tomorrow and uh, tell us what's going on in your state and your locality as we uh, watch the results come in together. Thanks for joining us. This is the Dan Proft Show.